The Old Testament reading for today is Isaiah 54, 1 through 8. Isaiah 54, 1 through 8. The New Testament reading and sermon text is Luke 5, 33 through 6, 16. First, Isaiah 54, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. What a beautiful passage this is that speaks of the coming Messiah. It speaks of the coming new covenant, the transition from the old to the new. Here Israel is comforted with these great words uh, that the Lord uh, will enlarge them. He will enlarge them to the ends of the earth. He will make the nations their inheritance. The Lord will enlarge them. He will redeem them. He will be as a husband to them. He will betroth Himself to them. This He has done through Christ Jesus the Lord. Let us go now to the New Testament reading, Luke 5:33 through 6.16. And they, that is to say the Pharisees and their scribes, said to Jesus, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good." On a Sabbath, while he was going through their grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, 
Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and he also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he arose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, And all night he continued in prayer to God, and when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor." It's now the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. As you can see, I've decided to take the same approach in this sermon as I did in the previous one. Instead of dividing the text into four or five parts, which could easily be done, I've decided to group the story about fasting, the parable about the wine and the garments, and the two stories about Jesus' activities on the Sabbath day together with the account of the naming of the twelve apostles. I've grouped these little stories together because I think there is a common theme that runs through them all, culminating in the naming of the apostles. The theme, in my opinion, is that Jesus came to start something new. Jesus came to start something new, or to inaugurate something new, we might say. Jesus came to build a new kingdom. He came to inaugurate a new covenant. He came to establish a new Israel. Those who were tempted to hold on to old customs, saying, The old is good, see Luke 5.39, are here challenged by Jesus, and they are warned about this. So then, just as the calling of Peter, James, and John to be disciples of Jesus was preceded by a miracle involving a great catch of fish to signify that Jesus' disciples would be made into fishers of men. And just as the calling of Levi, or Matthew, was preceded by miracles of healing to signify that Jesus, the great physician, came to call those who knew that they were sick to repentance and not those who thought themselves to be righteous and well, so too the story of the calling of the twelve apostles, as recorded here in six twelve through 16 um, which, by the way, ought to remind us, of the twelve tribes of Old Covenant Israel, is preceded by stories about Christ challenging the traditions of the Pharisees and scribes. And why do these stories precede uh, the calling of the twelve apostles, which should remind us of the twelve tribes of Israel? Well, I think here Jesus is saying, I have come to do a new thing. 
I have come to start and to build a new kingdom. I have come to inaugurate a new covenant. I have come to establish a new Israel. And therefore, he does warn and challenge very directly the scribes and the Pharisees about this attitude. They were prone to say, the old is good. They were prone to cling fast to their traditions. And here Jesus challenges their traditions. We will consider our text today in five parts, for there are five distinct portions of this passage. But I do hope to keep this theme, the theme of the newness of Christ's work, ever before you. First, let us consider the questions about fasting found in Luke 5, 33-35. There we learn that the Pharisees and their scribes approached Jesus and challenged Him, saying, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. I don't think this was merely an honest observation or question prompted by curiosity. Instead, this was a criticism. It was an attempt to sow discord amongst Jesus' disciples and the disciples of John, perhaps. Also, the question implied that the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees were somehow more spiritual than the disciples of Jesus. Look at us, we and our disciples, fast and pray regularly. Even the disciples of John evidently had this custom I think there is an implication here, but your disciples are not so spiritual. They eat and they drink. Now, to fast is to abstain from eating food. By this time in history, the Pharisees had a custom of fasting regularly and even weekly. And it seems that the disciples of John had adopted this practice too, or at least some of them had. One question we should ask is this. Did the law of Moses require weekly or frequent Fasts. I think this is a very important question to ask. Did the law of Moses require this custom? And the answer is no. The people of Israel were commanded to fast on the Day of Atonement. You may see Leviticus 16, 29-31, or Leviticus 23, 27-29, also Numbers 29, 7, uh, Acts 27, 9 is also applicable here. Uh, the people of Israel were to fast on the Day of Atonement, which was a yearly holiday for them, a yearly holy day. But besides this fast day, no other regular fasts were commanded in the Law of Moses. The people would fast and pray in times of difficulty or affliction. And in this way, they would humble themselves and seek the Lord as occasion would require. But the Law did not require set fast days for the people of Israel beyond the Day of Atonement. The law did not say, Thou shalt fast weekly, on Thursdays, for example. And this fact is significant, for it shows that the Pharisees did not criticize Jesus for failing to obey the law of Moses, but for failing to conform to their man-made tradition. This is a very important distinction to keep in mind, not only here in this portion of the text, but in the stories that follow. The Pharisees and the scribes criticized Jesus and His disciples, not for breaking the law of Moses, but for failing to conform themselves to their man-made traditions. The Pharisees, and apparently these disciples of John, had this custom. They fasted and prayed often and regularly. And I suppose we might look at them and say, well, that is good for them. Certainly God's people are free to fast and pray as often as they see fit. 
That is not what we are dealing with here. In this instance, the Pharisees looked condemningly upon Jesus and His disciples because they did not follow their established custom. This, by the way, is a tendency that we must guard against. Human beings in general, and perhaps especially those who are religious, tend to want others to conform to their customs. And here is why it is so important for us to distinguish between God's law, which He has revealed to us, and human custom. We must know God's law, what it is and what it requires, and we must have the ability to distinguish between God's law, what God's law says to us, and human custom. Should we exhort one another to live in obedience to God's law? What's the answer to that question, brothers and sisters? Yes, of course. We should encourage and exhort one another to obey God's law. And if any who names the name of Christ is sinning against God's law, violating God's law, indeed it is right for another brother or sister to say to them, Turn from that sin, friend. For God has said, Thou shalt not. Or God has said, Thou shalt do this or that thing. And so we should strive to obey God's law and we should encourage one another to obey God's law. But should we insist that others follow our customs or our traditions? We must say no. In matters of custom or tradition, we must leave room for liberty of conscience. We must leave men free to follow their conscience in these things. Jesus' response to his critics is very interesting. There's a lot of meaning packed into it, in fact. He said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. What What an interesting response to this criticism. I want you to notice three things about his response. One, Jesus connects the practice of fasting with circumstances of need or affliction. So just as it would be inappropriate for wedding guests to fast at a wedding celebration. Can you imagine that? Think of it. Can you picture a wedding celebration? Uh, Either the kinds that they had back in Jesus' day or the kinds that we have today. I mean, imagine a wedding celebration. Would it be fitting? Would it be appropriate for the guests of the bride and the groom to sit there and to fast and to refuse to eat the great feast that is set before them? Would it be good for them to sit there and to afflict themselves in this way, and even to mourn in in this moment. No, it would be a most inappropriate thing, for for this would be a time for us to celebrate, to to feast with one another, to rejoice together. And so Jesus is drawing uh, the, the attention of the scribes and the Pharisees to this obvious fact. It is not appropriate for wedding guests to fast at a wedding reception, Neither is it fitting for people to fast during good times in general. When things are going well, fasting is not necessarily appropriate for that, you see. Uh, That is the general principle that Jesus brings forward here in His reply. God's people are to fast and pray, though, when there is some threat or need. They are to fast when they are afflicted in some way. It has already been noticed that the Law of Moses required Old Covenant Israel to fast on the Day of Atonement. The text actually says that they were to afflict themselves on this day. Uh, That is the language uh, that is used in the Old Testament. 
They were to afflict themselves. Why? Because it was an acknowledgement of their sin and of their need for their sins to be atoned for. On this day, they were to give special attention for this, this great, to this great need. They were to remember their sins. They were to remember their need for a Redeemer, someone who would atone for their sins. Now, why don't we observe the Day of Atonement under the New Covenant? And why don't we afflict ourselves on that day as the people of God under the Old Covenant did? Answer, because atonement has been made for our sins by Jesus the Messiah. So the people of old would fast yearly on the Day of Atonement to remember their need for atonement and to pray that the Lord would provide for their need, that the Lord would send the Messiah, the Redeemer. And they would also fast and pray periodically as occasion would require. Sometimes they would fast and pray as a whole nation. If the nation were under some threat, they would fast and pray. Sometimes they would fast and pray as individuals, but there was always some purpose for the fast. It was motivated by a sense of need, by a threat or by some affliction. And Jesus draws our attention to this fact when He says, Can you make wedding guests fast when the bridegroom is with them? In other words, there are times when fasting is appropriate, and there are times when it is not appropriate. It depends upon the circumstance, you see. And so His response tells us something about fasting and the appropriateness of it. Two, Notice that Jesus builds on this parable concerning the inappropriateness of fasting at a wedding celebration by claiming to be the bridegroom. We would say groom, but bridegroom or groom, whichever you prefer. Here in this text, Christ claims to be the bridegroom. Here again His words. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So here is Jesus' answer to the question, why don't your disciples fast? It is because the bridegroom is with them, Christ says. Jesus is the bridegroom. He was present with His disciples in His earthly ministry. This was no time for regular fasting. It was a time for rejoicing and celebration. Brothers and sisters, remember that these disciples of Jesus had just been called to follow Him. And so this was a time of great rejoicing and celebration for them. Fasting would have been inappropriate. You should know that the word bridegroom was a loaded word, still is. These Pharisees and scribes were well acquainted with the Old Testament Scriptures, and they would have immediately thought of the Isaiah passage that I read at the beginning of this sermon. There it is said, For your Maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is His name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of, whole the, of the whole earth, He is called. So here in this beautiful passage, Isaiah 53, which is about the coming Messiah and the coming new covenant and the accomplishment of our redemption, the Lord is called the husband and Redeemer of His people. Indeed, it is implied that He is the Redeemer of the whole earth in this text. Or listen to Isaiah 62, 4-5. There the Lord speaks to His people, saying, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice. Rejoice over you. 
This is a marvelous prophecy concerning the coming Messiah, concerning the accomplishment of our redemption, concerning the coming new covenant. We may see all of these themes here in this passage. And what is it said except that God Himself will rejoice over His people just as a bridegroom rejoices over His bride? Or consider Hosea 2.16-20. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And I will make for them a covenant on that day. Uh, We know this is the new covenant, the covenant of grace. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in in safety. By the way, I, I can't help myself here. This talk of abolishing the bow, the sword, and the war from the land, it will find its ultimate fulfillment in the new heavens and earth, of course. But I think there is... Uh, something here uh, about the, the, the nature of the new covenant as well. The old covenant was made with the nation of Israel, and the nation of Israel was often at war. But under the new covenant, the covenant is made with God's people, not a nation, but people called out of the nations to follow the Lord. And we are not a people at war, brothers and sisters. We are called to be at peace, you see. There is a distinction here between uh, the nations of this earth and the church, the church and the state, we do not wield the sword. And I think there is something about that in this Hosea passage, uh, which reveals the nature of the new covenant of which we are partakers. But now back to the text, and I hope I have not distracted from the point. The Lord says, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me Forever, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So, what the Lord would do under the new covenant and through the Messiah is marry His people. And do we not call the church the bride of Christ? Is Christ not indeed the bridegroom? He claims to be the bridegroom in the passage that we are considering today. And He says to the Pharisees and scribes, just as it would not be appropriate for people to fast at a wedding celebration when the bridegroom is present, neither is it appropriate for my disciples to fast now, for here they have been called to follow me, and I am the bridegroom. Here Jesus, by using this term, was claiming to be the Lord, the Redeemer, the Bridegroom, and the Husband of God's people. He was claiming to be the one who had come to accomplish our redemption, to enter into a new covenant, and to be the husband of God's redeemed. So the question is, why didn't Jesus' disciples fast in the way that the Pharisees did? Answer, because they were with the bridegroom. This was a time not for mourning, not for affliction, but for celebration. And the third thing to notice about Jesus' response is that He spoke of a time when the bridegroom would be taken away. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days, he said. When Jesus said the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, he was referring to his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. While Jesus was on earth with his disciples, they would not fast. But after he was taken away, they would, for then they would experience trials and tribulations of various kinds. And the same is true for you and me, brothers and sisters. So there may be times when fasting is appropriate for us. When we are afflicted or in some need, either as a congregation or as individuals, it may be appropriate for us to fast so that we might call upon the Lord in prayer. Let us go now to the parable that Jesus told 
regarding the garments and wineskins. At first, this little parable might seem out of place, but that cannot be. Did you hear what I just said there? Brothers and sisters, whenever you are reading the Scriptures, you need to look for the connections. Uh, Things are not placed in, in a random way or in a haphazard way. They're there for a reason. It cannot be that this is out of place. The parable is obviously related somehow to the context, to what precedes and what comes after. Hear it again. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will, not be, and it will be spilled. rather, And the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. So the question must be asked, how does this parable relate to the context? And I must tell you, it was interesting to read the commentary tradition on this passage. Many of the reformers interpreted this parable in this way. They would say that it means that the disciples of Jesus were not ready for a regiment of fasting like that of the Pharisees. They had some growing to do. This was a time for them to celebrate and rejoice, given that they were just called to follow Jesus, the bridegroom. Therefore, their practice needed to match their circumstance. So just as you would not patch an old garment with a a new patch, but rather with an old patch of cloth, and just as you would put new wine into new wineskins, so too these new disciples should be permitted to rejoice and not be forced to afflict themselves with fasting given their circumstance. So this has to do with the circumstance uh, matching uh, the, the, the outward practice of the disciples according to the reformers, or, or at least according to many of them. Now I'm not opposed to this interpretation entirely. It does indeed fit the context, and I think there is some truth in it. But I think there might be something more going on here, something else going on here. I take this parable to be a warning to the scribes and Pharisees concerning their rigid devotion to their old customs. We fast regularly. This is our well-established custom. Why don't your disciples do as we do? That's how they complained to Jesus. But here Jesus warns them that something new is here. The bridegroom is here. The new covenant is here. And there will be many changes that accompany this great transition, you see. The old garments are to be patched with old patches, and new wine is to be stored in new wineskins. In other words, the new covenant is substantially different from the old. Do not be surprised to see that it is carried within new customs. Are you, are you following me here? This is about uh, things matching. Uh, old garments should be patched with old patches, not new ones. And new wine should be put in new wineskins. So this is about things matching, customs matching with the, subs- the substance of, of the covenant, I think is the idea here. And those who were rigidly devoted to their old ways and old customs, as the scribes and Pharisees were, would have a very, very difficult time coming to Christ and being brought into this new covenant. 
I think the concluding line of this parable points us towards this interpretation. There Jesus says, And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, The old is good. And that is true, isn't it? I'm not a wine connoisseur, but I'm told that old wine is preferred over new wine. I think I've only had inexpensive wine, newer wine, except on one occasion. I remember someone... Uh, who, who had the means to do such a thing, uh, maybe at a Christmas time meal, uh, brought out a really nice bottle of really old and well-aged wine and offered me some. And I took a drink of it and I thought, I get it. This is really, really good uh, wine. It was old and it was expensive. And those who are wine connoisseurs, uh, they would say, the old is good. And so it is true. But here... Jesus is warning the Pharisees concerning this. He's warning them concerning their unbending devotion to the old ways. Something new was here. And of course, the new, the new covenant, was much better than the old. But if the Pharisees persisted in their insistence that the old is good, their old ways, their old customs, their old covenant was good, they would certainly miss out on the blessings of the new. They would miss it entirely. To illustrate, you you may think of a wine connoisseur, a really traditional and uppity one, if you wish, one who insists that the old wine is always better than the new, and then imagine that a really, really good new wine is produced, and I think that can happen, or so I'm told. The connoisseur who is insistent that the old is always better than the new will not be able to enjoy the new, for his mind will be made up. He's too devoted to his traditions. He's too stuck in his ways to appreciate the good thing that is right in front of him. And I think this is what is going on here. This interpretation fits the preceding context. The Pharisees criticized Jesus and his disciples because they did not follow their old, well-established customs. And Jesus explains that his disciples do not fast because this time was a time for rejoicing. For he is the bridegroom of whom the prophets spoke. He is the bridegroom who has come to accomplish redemption. He is the bridegroom who has come to establish a new covenant. And then he warns them about being so committed to their old customs and ways that they are unable to see the goodness the exceeding goodness of the new thing that was right before them. And this interpretation that I am here giving you also fits with the stories that follow. For Jesus goes on to challenge the old customs of the Pharisees. Look with me now at Luke 6, 1-5. Here Jesus challenges the customs of the Pharisees regarding Sabbath observance. Notice... I did not say that Jesus here challenges the law of Moses regarding Sabbath observance, but the customs of the Pharisees regarding Sabbath observance. Can you see the difference between the two things? Jesus is not here challenging the law of Moses. He is not here challenging the moral law of God, as summarized in the Ten Commandments. He is not even here challenging the ceremonial laws of Moses, for he did live under the Mosaic Covenant. But he is here challenging the customs or traditions or opinions of the Pharisees. And these are two very different things. And we must distinguish between them, lest we slip into error. Luke 6.1 says, On a Sabbath, and in those days the Sabbath day was observed on Saturday, 
as it had been from the creation of the world to the resurrection of Christ. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered into the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And he also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man, he is here referring to himself, is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the thing to notice is that the Pharisees accused Jesus of doing something unlawful. Notice that word. They accused him of doing something unlawful. Unlawful. In other words, they accused him of breaking what the law of Moses said about the Sabbath. But I have a question for you. Did Jesus break the law of Moses? Did he break the law of Moses as he and his disciples walked through the grain fields and plucked heads of grain uh, to, to eat and to nourish themselves in this way? Answer, no, certainly He did not violate the law of Moses. If he had violated the law of Moses at all, even in the smallest way, then he would have been a sinner. He would have been a lawbreaker. As I have already said, Jesus lived under uh, the, the, the moral law, as we all do, but he also lived under the ceremonial and civil laws of Old Covenant Israel because he was born under the Old Covenant and in Old Covenant Israel. He was born under Moses. So, He did not violate the law of Moses as he walked with his disciples through the grain fields and plucked heads of grain. What then is going on here? Well, the answer is that Jesus did not break the law of Moses, but he did break the traditions and opinions of the Pharisees. And as I've said before, these are two very different things. Did the law of Moses command Old Covenant Israel to rest from work and assemble for worship on the Sabbath day? Yes, it did. Did the law of Moses also contain strict civil laws that commanded that Sabbath breakers be punished even with death? Yes, it did. But did the law of Moses forbid the poor and hungry from plucking grain on the Sabbath to satiate their hunger? It seems that the answer to this question is no. Certainly a farmer was not to plow or harvest his field on the Sabbath day. You may see Exodus 34.21 for a text about that. And although harvesting grain, we might say for profit, and plucking grain for personal sustenance might look like similar activities, they are in fact very different activities. The law of Moses forbids plowing and harvesting on the Sabbath day, but the Pharisees had a tradition or an opinion That went beyond this, forbidding even the poor from gleaning from the fields. This, by the way, was a gracious provision that was made for the poor under the law. And you may see Leviticus 23.22, Deuteronomy 24.21, and Ruth 2.1-23 to learn more about this gracious provision that was made for the poor. Uh, The farmers in Old Covenant Israel were told... Uh, to leave some extra for the poor so that the poor might come and, and take some of the grain for themselves to satiate their hunger. And Jesus and His disciples were poor. And they wandered through the grain fields on the Sabbath day and took some grain and began, began to eat it. 
because they were hungry. The Pharisees were very concerned that the law of Moses be obeyed. And who can blame them for this? Indeed, this is a very good and noble desire. The trouble, though, is fourfold. One, they went beyond the law of Moses with their tradition. Two, they failed to distinguish between their tradition and the law itself. Three, they sought to impose their tradition on others. And four, while seeking to impose these customs on others, they lost sight of the second greatest commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, they began to to neglect the poor amongst them. Here, Jesus and his disciples were poor. They were hungry, and so they began to eat from the grain that was left over for the poor in obedience to the law of Moses. And yet here the Pharisees look at them and they look down upon them condemningly. What is it that you are doing? You're violating the Sabbath. No, they were not harvesting grain on the Sabbath, but they were plucking grain because they were poor and hungry. Notice that Jesus addresses this last failure when He says, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. Now this story is told in 2 Samuel 21, 1-6. You may read it for yourselves another time. But the point that Jesus makes by citing the story is that moral concerns having to do with the preservation of life can sometimes supersede and override ceremonial laws. Ordinarily, the bread of the presence was for the priests only, but in this instance it was given to David, King David, and his men, for they were truly famished. They were in this moment on the run. Uh, They were running for their lives away from the threat of Saul. And similarly, the Sabbath day is not ordinarily a day for picking grain, but under certain circumstances, in situations where there is a true and legitimate need, plucking grain may be permitted And this was one of those cases. You see, Jesus is here, not challenging the law of Moses, brothers and sisters. But He is here, challenging the opinions of the Pharisees. And He is doing this, it seems, very deliberately. He's doing this to expose and confront their error. He is attacking, as it were, their extra-biblical customs. He did it to show what true Sabbath observance looked like. The little saying of Jesus at the end of the story is very important. He said to them, the Son of Man, I told you that uh, the Son of Man language was a favorite title of Jesus for Himself. We saw it for the first time in the last passage that we considered, I, I believe. And here it is again, and it will appear again and again throughout Luke's Gospel. But here He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Notice, He did not say that He was against the Sabbath. He did not say that He intended to oppose or do away with the Sabbath, for He is the one to whom the Sabbath points, and He certainly possesses the authority to tell us how the Sabbath is to be kept properly. And so here Jesus preserves the Sabbath, that is the fourth commandment, the command to rest and to worship one day out of seven, but He strips away all of the gunk that the Pharisees had heaped upon it in this moment. And he distinguishes between the actual law of Moses and their custom. The next story is also about proper Sabbath observance. Here, the hypocrisy, the cold-heartedness of the Pharisees is really exposed. Look at Luke 6.6. On another Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, 
so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Did you notice the word lawful again? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So here in this story, we again see the opinions of the scribes and Pharisees pitted against the law of Moses. In their opinion, and what a sad opinion this was, in their opinion, it was unlawful to heal on the Sabbath. Healing, in their estimation, was work. And so they watched Jesus to see if He would do this this unlawful thing. And again, Jesus challenged them very deliberately. He knew their thoughts, the text says. And so He did the very thing that they were concerned about. He called the man over to Him, and once He was there, He looked around at the scribes and Pharisees and said, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm, to save life or to destroy it? And I do wonder how long He paused. Do you know what I mean? He calls the man forward. He asks the question. And I think he paused for a long time just to allow the scribes and the Pharisees and all who were there present with them to soak and squirm in their shame. What could they say? No, the Sabbath is not a day for doing good. It is not a day to preserve life. They, they knew this wasn't true. And so I believe they remained silent. And then Jesus healed the man. One, for the good of the man. Two, to expose the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees. Three, to show that the Sabbath day is a day for doing good. And four, to prove yet again by this miracle that He is the Son of Man and Lord of the Sabbath, just as He claimed. You see, this is a story about Jesus challenging not the law of Moses, But the customs of the scribes and Pharisees, they had their traditions, they had their opinions, they fasted weekly, they kept the Sabbath day by going beyond what the law required. And as they considered Jesus and His teaching, they were tempted to say, No thank you, the old way is good. But Jesus came to inaugurate something new, a new kingdom, a new covenant, founded on better principles than the old. And so He warned them that their customs would have to go. Their customs would have to change. New wineskins would be needed to hold the new wine. Brothers and sisters, please see that this theme culminates in the calling of the twelve apostles. And as I say this, I wonder if culminates is even the best word, because this theme is going to continue as Jesus goes and begins to preach what we have called the Sermon on the Mount, you you see. He's a new, a second and greater Moses is what he is. He's coming to establish something new. But in our text, in the text we are considering today, this theme culminates in the calling of the twelve apostles. The number twelve is significant. It should remind us of the twelve tribes of Israel. The meaning is that the apostles would be the foundation for the church, which is the new Israel of God. Just as old covenant Israel descended from the twelve sons of Jacob, so new covenant Israel descends from the twelve apostles. Yes, one of them, Judas, would betray Jesus. He would be removed and replaced. Nevertheless, the principle stands. Here we see Jesus called twelve men to Himself, and these would hold the unique office of apostle. These would function as the foundation 
for the new covenant people of God. Luke 6.12 says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when he came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Clearly, Jesus was starting something new. A new kingdom had begun, a new temple was being built, a new covenant was being cut, and so Jesus warned the scribes and Pharisees and all who heard His words not to err by saying, The old is good. Jesus did not come to patch the old garments of the old covenant. Did you hear what I just said there? He did not come to patch the old garments of the old covenant. He was not this kind of of, of reformer. He did not come to to straighten Israel out and to to clean things up, but to preserve the old. No, He looked at the old garments of the old covenant, and He said, they have served their purpose. They have served their purpose, and it's time for them to go. A new covenant is, is here. The old must go. And the new wine of the new covenant would be need, uh, excuse me would need to be kept in new wineskins. Customs would have to change. The civil and ceremonial laws of the old Mosaic covenant would be abrogated. And certainly the man-made traditions of the scribes and Pharisees would have to go. And so Jesus warned them with His words. And by His actions He began to challenge their false doctrine. And this only aggravated them all the more. And so they sought to do him harm. I'd like to move this sermon towards a conclusion now by offering a few reflections on this text. One, this text should move us, brothers and sisters, to clearly distinguish in our minds and hearts between God's law and human tradition. We are no longer bound by the civil and ceremonial laws of Old Covenant Israel. We may learn things from them, yes, but we are not under them. But we still must distinguish between the moral law of God and human tradition, lest we fall into the air of the Pharisees. And as I say this, I I do not mean to suggest that we should in any way neglect God's law. God has revealed His moral law. He has revealed it in nature and even more clearly in Scripture. Indeed, it is true the moral law law of God is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. Christians should care deeply about obeying God's commandments. For Christ has said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And no, do not believe the lie that the commandments of Jesus are different from the commandments of God as revealed in the Ten Commandments. No, the moral law of God is also the law of Christ. And yes, this even includes the fourth of the Ten Commandments, which has to do with the time that is to be set aside for worship. Our catechism summarizes the teaching of Scripture concerning the Sabbath beautifully in questions 63 through 66. I'll not read that material to you now. In brief, it rightly teaches that the fourth commandment is still in force. The people of God are to honor one day in seven as holy unto the Lord. They are to cease from common labor and other distractions that do not fit the purpose of the day. And they are to devote themselves to the worship of God, both in public and private. From the creation of the world to the resurrection of Christ, the Sabbath day was Saturday. From the resurrection of Christ to the end of the world, the rest day is Sunday. We call it the Lord's Day. 
or the Christian Sabbath. The day has changed, brothers and sisters, because Christ inaugurated a new creation when he rose from the dead. So just as the first Sabbath was a memorial to the first creation, just as the first Sabbath was a memorial to the redemption that God worked for Old Covenant Israel to bring them out of Egyptian bondage, so too the Christian Sabbath, the first day Sabbath, is a memorial to the new creation that Christ has brought in through His life, death, burial, and resurrection, and to the much greater act of redemption that He's accomplished for us by redeeming us from the kingdom of darkness itself and from the fear of death and from the pains of hell forever. There is still a Sabbath-keeping for the people of God, according to the book of Hebrews. And so, yes, we are to be concerned to obey God's moral law. And this includes the fourth commandment, which has to do with the time for the worship of God. The moral law contains within the Ten contained within the Ten Commandments are binding on us. Christians should be concerned to obey them, not to be justified by keeping them or to earn God's favor. No, we are justified by the grace of God alone and through faith in Christ alone. We obey these laws because we love God. We obey God's moral law because we are justified and adopted by His grace. We obey not being driven by fear, but being driven by gratitude for all that God has freely given to us. And yes, each one of these Ten Commandments does have necessary implications. Baptist Catechism questions 44 through 86 and the Westminster Larger Catechism 91 through 148 are very helpful resources as they draw out the necessary implications of the Ten Commandments. I'll give you three examples very quickly. The command to honor father and mother requires that honor be shown to all people in a way that fits their station in life. Honor is to be shown to those in an inferior position, to those of an equal position, and those of a superior position. The command to honor father and mother demands this by way of implication. Two, the command to not commit adultery requires that we preserve the chastity of others and forbids lust in the heart. And three, the command to not murder requires the preservation of life and forbids recklessness while also forbidding hatred in the heart. Why am I talking now about the implications of the Ten Commandments? It is for this reason, brothers and sisters, I am saying we need to learn to distinguish between God's law and man-made traditions. And when we consider God's law, we must not only obey the Ten Commandments in an external way, but we also must obey the necessary implications of the Ten Commandments that are, that are obvious to all, I think, if pressed, but they're also contained within the Holy Scriptures themselves. The point that I'm attempting to make in brief is that we must know God's law, what it requires and what it forbids. We must know God's law so that we might strive to keep it, and we must know God's law so that we can distinguish between law and traditions, opinions, and customs. God's law is binding on us, but the traditions of man are not. Sometimes the traditions of man can in fact be very damaging, even to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is it your custom, for example, to read scripture and pray at a certain time of the day? Is it your custom to eat certain foods, drink certain drinks, and abstain from others? Is it your custom to dress in a particular way? Well, that is all good for you. But if these customs of yours are not commanded in Scripture, then you must not impose them on others. So that is the first 
application, point of application that I have for you. Two, as we seek to keep God's law, let us not forget that the summary of God's moral law is love. Law-keeping, really and truly, is not about rule-following, but love. One time a lawyer asked Jesus a question to test him. He said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That is Matthew 22, 35 through 40. Not only did the Pharisees, who criticized Jesus, err in that they added to God's law and imposed their traditions on others, but these traditions they developed were also unloving. They were so concerned to guard against Sabbath-breaking, for example, that they developed traditions that hindered people from doing good to others on the Sabbath day. And how sad that was. The poor were not permitted, in their opinion, to glean from the fields to satiate their hunger. And they would even ask Jesus to refrain from healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day. So let us be sure to obey God's law with love in our hearts for God and our fellow man. Three, let us contemplate the abundant goodness of the new covenant when compared to the relative goodness of the old. The new covenant, brothers and sisters, is much better than the old because it actually reconciles sinners to God. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, and He is our Redeemer. He is the bridegroom of God's covenant people. The old covenant was good. It served its divinely ordained purpose for a time, but it was designed to give way to the new The Old Covenant could not reconcile sinners to God and open the way up for them into the heavenly place. But the New Covenant does. The way has been opened up through Christ's broken body and shed blood. And so let us contemplate it, brothers and sisters, and may we be moved to greater faith, love, and devotion to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us as your people to love you more dearly and also to love one another. May we look to Christ, our bridegroom, and may we rejoice in him. May we rejoice in this great grace that you have shown to us to reconcile us to yourself. Lord, I pray that we would all be moved out of a sense of gratitude to live in obedience to you, O God. Christ himself has said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And Lord, we do love you. We pray that you would help us to keep your commandments. I pray, O God, that you would receive all glory, honor, and praise in this way. In the name of Christ, we say these things. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.